Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Failure. I think it's safe to say that virtually all of us hate it. And yet, it appears to be the price of admission to doing just about anything great. The road from having an idea all the way to having a fantastic result is rarely a smooth one. Ask any super successful person about their failures and struggles along the way, and if they're forthcoming, I am confident they will have stories for you. The great author who was rejected by dozens of publishers before finding someone to take her on. The singer who's told he has no talent, only to become a music star later in life. I imagine you've heard these stories, but do you let them into your heart to inspire you to tolerate your own frustration and failure. I'm delighted that Dr. Luke Reynolds is joining us for this episode. Luke is a professor of education at Endicott College. He is also the author of several books, including Fantastic Failures, True Stories of People Who Changed the World Falling Down First. Luke is no stranger to frustration and failure, and he describes many of his own, as well as some of the failures of the biggest stars on the planet. So put on your seatbelt and listen in to this lively and inspiring conversation about befriending frustration and failure. Dr. Luke Reynolds, who has asked me to call him Luke, welcome to Super Psyched. Thanks so much, Adam. I'm so super psyched to be here. (laughs) Oh man, I'm so happy. It's so funny because I bumped into your work when I was at what was called an immersive Van Gogh experience. And I walked into the gift shop with my son and there was only one book in there and it was yours. Hmm. I picked it up and I just looked at my 12 year old son and I said, I have got to interview this guy for Hmm. sure. Shoot you an email. You responded in kind and I love what you've done. It's such an important piece of work and it conforms with my algorithm for success. There is no Mm. such thing as success without failure embedded Mm. on the way. Mm. And I just wanted to, before we even get into your awesome book, which although it's intended for children is totally readable for adults, let's just hear a little bit about who you are. Well, I've been a teacher for about 20 years or so and got my start teaching public school and at the high school level, switched down to the middle school level and, and really love middle schoolers. And that's where a lot of my passion for writing came from. And I'm married and have four young boys as well. One's 12, like yours. I was at the bookstore. And probably the most interesting fact I can share is that when I was 32, the best job I could get was being a paper boy. I was a 32-year-old paper boy for about a year and couldn't get a teaching job, couldn't get anything. So that was my very adult personal story. Hold on a second. When you say a paper boy, you means you were like throwing newspapers to people's residences? Yeah. Yeah. So we lived in England for a few years and my wife went back to school to do her doctorate and I couldn't find any teaching gigs. I remember getting rejected from, I applied to be a night shift cleaner at a pub. They didn't choose me. They chose some other guy. And so I literally, there was a sign that said boys and girls wanted to deliver newspapers. And I got that in the meantime. So I would deliver 40 newspapers every morning and I felt supremely shamed by it for the first couple of months. And then it taught me more than anything else I've ever done. Well, what did it teach you? 
one huge thing for most of my life, I had built my identity on the grades I got, the people whom I hung out with, whatever money I could make or the influence I had. If I maybe taught a great class and a student said like, wow, thank you, Mr. Reynolds. I thought I'm doing okay. I got this compliment or something. And when I was doing this paper route, there was nothing. In fact, I got yelled at by people saying like, you didn't put the paper in the right spot or things like that. <laughs> and so oh it was there, no positive reinforcement. And I thought many mornings doing this paper out in the rain, I just thought, what have I become? I'm nothing. I'm not doing anything. I'm not contributing anything. I'm half shaven and all of this. And it was a real battle with myself to find out when I've got nothing else, then what? Who am I? And it kind of taught me to start from that place and that everything else could be essentially added on. But learning to love at that point, we just had one son. So this two-year-old boy, he thought the world of me and he thought the paper route was cool. And so I kind of rebuilt my, a little bit of my identity based on this two-year-old kid thinking, Hey, my dad gets to deliver newspapers anymore. That's cool. And I started to rebuild a sense of self that wasn't as much based on external validation from the world, <laughs> I guess. And how did that change your experience of this, what sounds like a profoundly humbling job? A couple of things that taught me is when we came back to the States, I never looked at anyone doing what, what I might have con considered a menial job or everything from delivering newspapers to wiping counters as having any less dignity than anybody else. To this day, I'll go up to somebody cleaning a table and say, thank you. We think of military veterans saying, thank you for your service. And that experience being a paper boy taught me the amount of shame I felt. And I, I will sometimes go up to people cleaning and say, thank you. Like, I really appreciate what you're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and things like that, it taught me to value people differently than the standard and the rubric I'd been taught growing up that value people who have letters after their name, who have achieved success, who have achieved beautiful things by the world standard. And I thought there's a lot of beauty that doesn't get recognition. And maybe I felt that way about myself in, in that year as a paper boy. So it taught me a, a lot about that. What's interesting is that I know that this was not a theological experience, and yet it sounds like it was in some ways a religious experience in that many religious traditions will strip down people so that they experience humility and can really experience humanity at a deeper level and there by virtue of your wife getting a doctorate in england and the scarcity of jobs available to you basically were limited to doing this and having that experience and deriving that insight of wow, this is what it's like to be human stripped to the bone. Mm. And it sounds like you're far wiser as a result of that. We could kind of to tie it to your book, Failure. Mm. Yeah, I could feel it changing me while it happened. Like there were the mornings where I was on my old bike delivering papers, crying. I just, oh. and unabashedly so, just crying, thinking like, who am I? What have I become? I put so much value in so much of, of what people thought of me that there was no way I could think anyone would see this. And one quick thing I'll share is that I remember the first day I tried to, I always try to have a, like a positive attitude. And mm. the first day I was, I went to get my newspaper boy bag, the fluorescent yellow yeah. bag. And I remember standing on a corner waiting to cross the street with my bike next to me. And there was a, a young girl, probably 12, 13 years old, also delivering papers. <sighs> and we were going to go our separate ways. And I remember looking at her and saying, Hey, this is pretty cool, huh? And she looked at me with this disgust, like, it's cool for me because I'm 13. You're an old guy. It's not cool. Because it was a powerful moment to say, 
yeah, I got to reckon with some of this internal stuff. Like, why do I feel so ashamed? What haven't I processed to be able to accept this and kind of enjoy it? So it was a grateful for it now. And to this day, I mean, I joke now, like I love teaching where I teach and I love the life we have, but I'd be lying if I didn't say sometimes I close my eyes and think I could just do that morning paper out. And that's weird, right? It? You know, it would be like, so much simpler than yeah. having the, the burden of this incredible blessing of this job. But at the same time, yes. it's, it's a, I get there's it. Something like your point about the human, there's something profound and simple about that kind of experience of humility. Man, that is so powerful. So let's get into the book. I just love it so much. What compelled you to write it? I mean, I think one of the driving forces was I was teaching middle school and I was working with these students. And this was after our England experience. We came back and I was working in middle school again. And I just remember starting class and handing back essays when students would get a grade. And you could see on the face if someone mm. got an 89, it was like, they were crushed. <laughs> it was like, my life is over. Totally. 89 of my seventh grade English essay. And I remember a student who loved basketball, tried out for the middle school team, didn't make it. He sat next to me crying and you just want to hug him and be like, I promise it's going to be okay. Like, this dude, is, you're going to, you're going to be fine. Right. But they felt as though like, this is it. And so I just started um, researching people who had beautiful, amazing people who they admire, who had supreme failures. And I started coming in, just telling them these stories. Like, did you all know Albert Einstein, like threw a piano bench at his teacher because he got so angry. He had incredible anger management problems. And did you know Lin-Manuel Miranda took an entire day to write one couplet for oh. Hamilton, like two lines. And he felt at the end of the day, like, it took me 12 hours to write two lines. And so if you're struggling with your essay, you're not alone. They're like these I started to tell these stories and then, and that's where the book began. I think that's great. As I mentioned to you earlier, I work with very high functioning, high performing adults in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that perfectionism runs rampant, both in terms of their own lives and, and sometimes when they're dealing with their own children. What are your thoughts on perfectionism as a thing? I guess one way I would say it is the way I like to work with students who are writers. So I teach a couple of thesis classes now and our oldest son, Tyler, who's 12, loves to write as well. I think this is kind of my analogy for perfectionism. When we sit down to write, when a student's writing a thesis or my 12 year old's working on some writing, it's almost like there's this desire when we're perfectionists, we want to stop, make sure the line is good, make sure it sounds good, it feels good, it's grammatically correct. And it's probably the worst thing we can do to ourselves as writers. And what, what we really need is just to keep going, to keep pushing grammatical mistakes and all. And what we end up with is something far more real and beautiful. And we can go back and make changes. But I, I like to think about life like that. The idea that I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert who said, sometimes done is better than good. Oh, and that idea of kind of pushing forward and knowing that it's, it won't be perfect, it won't look great, and that it, it won't feel right to us. I think when we're perfectionists, we feel like we're doing something morally wrong when we keep going and it's not great already. And I think that's the lie that we internalize. And so I think it's sort of like right to the end of the story, right to the end of the thesis. We can go back and make changes, sort of that low pressure environment to say, let's finish. There's always time to adjust. And I noticed when I embody that in my life, it's far more fun. And even yeah, when the, sure. the lie inside is like, fix it now or you never will. It's That's such a great point. So I got to ask you, I mean, as I hear you talking about just being beholden to perfection in mm. terms of the writing process, two of my favorite writers, Abraham Lincoln and Barack Obama, 
mm-hmm. both have kind of a musicality to their writing. I don't know if you've noticed it. It's almost like mm-hmm. the words just, they just flow like good music. And I think there's something beautiful about that. And yet I think Elizabeth Gilbert is so spot on that done is better than good. I have been flummoxed by that as well, mm-hmm. just in terms of not wanting to deliver something until it's just like perfect to kind of that Abraham and Barack level of Mm. like just gorgeous writing. And yet sometimes you just need a beat up truck to get it up the hill. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well said. I remember reading dreams from my father. It blew my mind. It it was like these lines are like poetic and they're beautiful and, and every word seems perfectly chosen. And it's long too. It has, you know, it's, it has depth. It, it's exquisite. And I think I, this is where, this is where I've come to my piece. I think there's so much beauty in that. And I remember him talking in an interview about how he created his library and Michelle was like, he goes in there and does however many hours he just sits with the writing and it's deep and he'll cross things out. And I think that process is almost to me, that mirror of he just sits with it and lets it develop and writes and writes and it eventually gets there. But I think that there's a sense of acceptance. This is going to take a while and I'm going to sit with it and let it stew and let it become better. But even he's talked openly about how many people he needs to help his writing. He'll give it to people and ask for thoughts or feedback and editors he's worked with. And I think that to me is that the perfectionist in me always wants to say, I've got to do this and I've got to do this alone. And I think the reality is there's so many other people who are wanting and willing to help and that it takes a while for something to get to become that beautiful. My other thought too is, I think we don't recognize our own beauty when we create it, when we write something, a poem or a story or a piece of art or a software package, we tend to be so critical of ourselves, but other people might look at it and say like, this is beautiful. This is profound to me. You know, what you're speaking to kind of in the parentheses is the idea of none of us really does it alone. We all need this team, it's almost like the fellowship of the ring. We all need a Gandalf. We all need a dwarf with a hammer. We all need a person from the Shire with a rig. We need various gifts to get us there. And oftentimes we live under this illusion that it was all done by this one person. And it rarely was. Is that consistent with your experience? Yeah, I think it's deeply consistent. And I think about, you know, anything I've done, I started even that paperboy route. There was one morning that I love to think about when I felt ready to just throw in the towel and everything. And my wife and the, my two-year-old, she knew it was a hard morning. It was icy and all this. And I just remember she met me with our two-year-old at like six in the morning and was like, we're going to do the route together today. And that was really beautiful because she turned this despairing moment when I was ready to say like, I'm just done. I, I'm like, this is, I'm done. And she knew I left in that sort of state of mind. She was like, let's do these papers. And I think when, and when I looked at even all of these people, I loved researching for fantastic failures. That was one additional theme. That was like the secondary theme. The first was, yes, they have all failed in profound ways, big ways. And they, and they kept going. But the second theme was each of them had this scanned off this, this supportive person who was ready to say, keep going. It's okay. It's you're, you know, I see something beautiful in you. You're worth it. Keep trying. It's okay. And that was very cool to me. That's awesome. Luke. You cover dozens of people who have just done unbelievable things. And unbeknownst to many of us, they've struggled along the way. Everybody from John Cena to Oprah to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who you described earlier, to Barack Obama, all these people have struggled 
mightily along mm. their way towards huge success. Mm. And I'm wondering which of the stories is most dear to you? Can you just give a couple of the stories that just really landed? I mean, the one that, and this is, is probably one of the most profound for me is Obama's because it's such a visual, physical representation of, I think, how we all have felt at, at certain points when we're pursuing something. So he had just lost his state Senate race and he felt like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he was contemplating getting out of politics. Michelle kind of reluctantly said, hey, why don't you go to this Democratic convention out in L.A.? And just see if that rekindles anything, see if that inspires anything. And this was 2004. And so he went out and I love there's this scene when he gets to the rental car place and his credit card is declined. Oh and you, so I, I just for me, I love this image of here oh. Obama. And I, just so you, you think about dignity, like the totally rental car guy being like future leader of the like, free world, like, having like, his credit card like, declined, like so human. Yeah. Like you can't rent a car from us and just this physical feeling. And he's able to find a way. He eventually talks with the guy, gets a car and gets to the convention. And the beautiful moment, I think the poignant moment for me in his story is he describes in an interview with David Axelrod, he describes walking around the halls of the convention, but not being able to obtain a pass that would let him in the main hall. And that's just profound. He talks about watching the convention on the TV screens in the hallway and the doors being shut and him being outside of these doors. And just, I mean, to think about, sorry, this was 2000. Then you think about 2004, four years later, where he's giving the keynote address in Boston at the next Democratic convention. And that image of the doors being shut in his face to me is profound because I think that's the, those moments where we feel like our idea for this business or our, whatever we've created, whatever we've attempted, it just bombed. It just didn't work. And we can think like, well, that's it. Like, that's the end of the line for me. I'm not being given access into this thing I really wanted. And, and then Obama regroups and fate would allow the circumstance for him to talk. And all of a sudden, he's the one being lauded. And I think that's just profound. Because I think a lot of us have those experiences where doors are closed in our face and we think, now what? And it's not the end of the story. There's always more chapters to be written. And so I love his story, particularly. I love that. And it talks to me about tenacity and frustration tolerance are the two things that come to my mind. I remember sitting with a brilliant kind of an elder spokesman of a psychoanalyst. And he said, if I could only teach my children one thing, it would be to tolerate failure well. That was what he said. With all of his years of wisdom, that was the one thing that he wishes for children to have. And as I hear about the doors, literally, as well as metaphorically, but mm-hmm. what felt like metaphorically closing on Barack in that moment and him yeah. just pushing through that. It's true with some of the authors you described being declined by multiple publishers and just pressing yeah. on. I think of Colonel Sanders with his multiple attempts mm-hmm. to get somebody to accept his recipe and, mm-hmm. and the aforementioned Abraham Lincoln who failed at everything yeah. before becoming lauded historically as one of the best U.S. presidents of all time. You just think about all of these people who have failed so mightily. And then there are people like you and me, you took forever, as you told me, to finish your doctorate. And in my case, I, let's see, between my beginning and finishing my master's, I think it was 10 years, I finished my doctorate quickly, but it was the master's that for some reason I was just, I just wasn't willing to finish, which is Mm. atypical. But Mm. there's something about the atypical trajectory. (laughs) 
yeah. or the slow trajectory yeah. and appreciating the highs much more after having experienced those failures. I'm thinking about just you having mm. that reference point mm. of having been a paper boy and then having the privilege mm. of teaching people at the college level now. Mm. It's got to mm. be different than somebody who went straight through. Yeah, no, and I, I think you're right. And I think the journey, like you said, the Byzantine journey sometimes is what helps us create a sense of stability, a sense of a willingness. I love that what you said about the psychotherapist, but that the willingness to endure failure and to feel like this is okay and even to normalize it. I think that's something our kids desperately need is a sense that yeah, this is okay. And I think in our culture, the way you've described far more beautifully than me, when men aren't encouraged to be able to cry and to process emotion, to deal with failure and frustration, and to say, yeah, process it, get it out. It's okay. And then we keep walking. It's normal. There's nothing abnormal about this. And I think when like the stories here remind me that this is very normal to take a meandering route. And then in the, at the end of the day, I also think far more interesting when you think about like the points A to B with my uh, students, I'll sometimes say, we will put point A and point B on the board. And you'll say, when you become a teacher, as I work with people who are going to be teachers, I'll say, you want your students to get from A to B as quickly and as, as efficiently as possible. And uh, we'll just draw a straight line. Sure. And then we'll say, this, that's incredibly boring. What if that were your life? Birth, death, straight line. You know, that's, that's just how, how boring. And so we, what we really want in the classroom is loops and swirls and zigs and zags. Like we want that to look chaotic because that's beauty. That's music. That's a heart rate. That's, that's everything that's naturally talk about like the natural rhythm of Obama's books. And that's natural to who we are is to have those highs and lows and, and twists and turns. And I think it, it makes it a more beautiful story. Yeah. We have to have a basis for comparison. We have to have reference points. And I think about an old joke where the husband asks the wife, do you love me? And the wife says, compared to what? And you just have to, you have to have a basis for comparison yeah. the straight line would be a profoundly boring story. We do need the highs and the lows. We do need to have colors along the way. And I think that whenever we have a massive face plant, if we can hold it in our mind in that moment, someday this will be a great story. Someday this will become a great story. I'm a paper boy right now. Yeah. And that sucks. And a 12 year old just gave me stink eye. But someday this is going to be a great story. And I learned this actually from an author who wrote a book on storytelling. Just the concept of someday this will be a great story. And so I just I find myself hearing that in what you're yeah. saying. What do you wish people, if you could just mainline an idea into the general population, what do you wish people understood about failure? No, I think if I could sort of implant in all of our brains, myself included, because <laughs> I need reminder, I think it would be the sense that failing allows us to become free. Failing allows us to become huh. free. And I think before we fail, there is a constant pressure and fear that is so overwhelming, so paralyzing that it imprisons us. Yep. And I think we live in that. I think I've lived in that. I think you look at even sports is a great analogy, but business, so many areas, even teaching, you know, when, when we live in the sense of failure is the worst thing that could happen to me, then we're imprisoned and we always have to keep getting better. We always have to go up and up. We always have to win the next game. And you see it in teams where the perfect record, the best thing they could do before the NCAA playoffs is to lose a game, like lose right. a game, like look at Gonzaga, which is have to lose a game. And then you probably do a lot better. But I think the lack of failure is a prison. So I, I think I would put into all of our brains that failing is a path to freedom. 
we have to find ways to fail. And I think for those of us who are perfectionists, it's like we need to that reminder, go do something you're terrible at. Go learn something <laughs> brand new that's going to feel like I'm a 32-year-old paper boy or I've never worked on a car. Like try to change your own oil. L- like literally just do something to make you feel like I am completely out of my element. I don't even know what I'm doing here. And that's a beautiful thing. It reminds us we're alive. It reminds us, man, I've got a lot to learn. It can humble us in that good way. But then when we do things well, it's like you said about that comparison point, it allows us to savor the victory too. And I think after being in England and working as a paper boy, when I came back to the seventh grade middle school class, those students must have thought like, man, this guy is nuts. (laughs) It was like all that energy that I had from delivering a newspaper. I was like, you all are going to get this. This has been saved up for years. Like, man, are we going to do some poetry? Because they're like, whoa, you like you hibernated for three years and now it's pouring out. And I think sometimes failure does that for us. Like we fail and it's that hibernation. And then when we get to something where we feel capable at, all that failure is that hibernating energy that that then pours out. And it's like, wow, where did this come from? (laughs) Dude, that resonates so deeply with me, the hibernating energy. When I became a psychologist, I had been in the corporate sphere for nearly two decades. And the way I described it was I was like a dog who wanted to take a walk for 10 years and was finally let out the door. And it was just like, I just sprung (laughs) out the door. And like every group supervision, I was like, it's group supervision time. This is going to be great. And everybody was looking at me like, dude, is this guy high? And I'm like, no, this is amazing. Do you guys realize how amazing this is? We get to learn. And people just didn't like, I don't know what's in this coffee. But you know, you're speaking to so many important points, Luke. And I don't even know if you're aware of how many you are. But there is a believe a saying, I wish you success early in life, and it's a curse. I wish you success early in life, and it's a curse. I don't know from which country it comes, but I love this idea as it being a curse because we don't have a basis of comparison. And if it's that success later in life, and it's like, oh, I now get it. This is actually amazing. This is actually amazing. And after failing, having that experience of like, Okay, all that tenacity paid off. All of that Mm. sacrifice paid off. I also Mm. think about the idea. I mean, I speak some foreign languages and the only reason I speak them is I was Mm. willing to tolerate sucking. Mm. I think that a lot of Mm. people have difficulty tolerating sucking because if they conceive of themselves as being smart. Yes. I remember reading in the book Nurture Shock that one of the worst things you could ever do to your child is tell them that they're smart because if they think of themselves as smart, they're not willing to fail. Yeah, yeah. And and instead, Mm. what you do is you praise the effort, Mm. not their intelligence, not their self-concept. Praise their effort and their effort Mm. will grow. Praise their smart and they will not engage in the effort. Is that consistent with Mm. your experience? That's such a beautiful point. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and I love love that you said that, being able to tolerate sucking is, I mean, that's such an incredible attribute, right? Because what it says is, yeah, I don't have to be great at this at the start. I just have to kind of stick with it. And then I'll get to that point where it feels good. And that is definitely what I think about the the kids I've worked with. And now the, even though they're college students, they still feel like kids probably because I'm getting old, but uh, dude, uh, you are so not. (laughs) For those of you who can't see Luke right now, he generates a youthful glow. Well, I would say the same about you, but oh, thanks, you know, man. But I think they're, they're in the classroom. These college students, it's they're so quick to want to be able to pick up a new idea, a new theory, a new application. And if they don't get it right away, they'll often feel as though, well, I guess I'm not good at this. And that's the biggest myth I like tried to dispel in the college classroom is no, 
it doesn't mean you're not good at it. It just means you haven't sat with it long enough and, and let it, let it take its place. Let it take its hold, walk around with it. Like think about it, those things that, that they take time. Yeah. And effort. I agree. So my man, what would you say? Cause you've worked with children and you've worked with young adults and, and adults. How do you see them metabolizing failure differently? Is there a difference in the metabolization process of failure between children and perhaps adults from where you uh, sit? I would have thought yes, before sort of seeing failure in, in, on a number of different levels. And I now say it's remarkably similar. When I think about my seventh graders and the way they experience and talk about failure, and I think about the college students, the way they experience and talk about failure, it's remarkably similar in the sense of they both groups often see failure as a verdict on their identity. And they'll say, okay, I did not make the college dance team. Therefore, who am I? And I guess I could think of myself as a 32 year old, right? Like at that point, I had already taught public school for years. I hadn't gotten the doctor, but I got a master. Like I had some interesting experiences. And yet here I was 32 thinking, I, I can't get a good job. I am a failure. And I think the way we, we metabolize it in that sense, to me, I think at any age, we tend to interpret it as a verdict. So one guy I will share beautiful story. When I was in England, after working as a paper boy, I did manage to get one night adult education class. It was a public speaking class. The most fascinating student I ever had was an 80-year-old guy named David. And he had worked as a successful businessman his whole life in York, England. And he had retired. And at the first class, everyone goes around and shares, why are you in a public speaking class for adults? And sadly, many people say, I had this horrible experience in school and my teacher told me I, I wasn't a good speaker and they wanted to overcome that fear. But David said, it wasn't a horrible experience in school. He said, he said, look, I'm 80, I'm gonna die soon. I wanna overcome my fear before I die. Oh. That was a powerful, poignant moment. And the class rallied around David. Like we all loved him, this, this older man. But it was that beautiful attempt to say, I don't want to live in fear of not being able to do something. I don't want to live in fear of failure. And he knew he needed to deal with that as a man, as an adult before he passed. And I think I wish I could take that and put it into the college students and put it into the seventh graders to say, the worst thing is not to fail. The worst thing is to live in fear of failure. You bring up such a good point around shame and it's such an important idea to contrast shame from, for example, guilt. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I feel bad for what I did. But with shame, we tend to contract and actually hide and not be willing to actually attend to it. And Brene Brown's research has yielded so many important things that there can be truly no courage without vulnerability. That vulnerability, what Dave from York, sure, was exhibiting that vulnerability of saying, hey, man, before I go at 80 years old, I got to <laughs> confront my fear. I mean, that's a vulnerable statement. And guess what it was also? It was spectacularly courageous. Our capacity to be courageous is actually mediated by our capacity to be vulnerable. And David exhibited that so brilliantly. But it's like this verdict on one's ID, as you just use that phrase, it's a verdict on our ID. And his willingness to say, hey, while I'm here, while I'm on this side of the grass, yeah, I'm going to go get me a different experience of yes. life. And yeah. that is one of the greatest things. But the other thing that I love about this so much, and I've gotten keenly interested in the concept of friendship and social connection, mm -hmm. is that to the earlier point, we cannot do it alone. I imagine that people yeah. rallying around David increased the likelihood of him actually getting that. Yeah. And his vulnerability increased the likelihood of people rallying. 
So it yeah. was just this virtuous cycle. You, you said it. And that class, like even today with the college students, when we talk about what makes a good classroom environment, obviously like the teachers, I mean, important, the, the tone, all the, but your point about the support, the friendship we need, David's vulnerability, his courage, being able to admit that created this classroom dynamic where they supported each other in more beautiful ways than I've ever seen in another class because they wanted, like you said, they wanted to see David overcome his fear and he was their champion. So when every person would go up and take their turn to give a little talk each class, they just spontaneously would applaud each other. They were just deeply supportive of each other and they made huge strides because of that. Wow. Amazing. I also see, I just need to name this trend. You've probably seen these fail videos on YouTube where you see people attempting something great and they fail and kids love poking fun and almost just like it becomes almost like putting them into the village circle and making them into the village idiot rather than heroic for actually trying. And I'm wondering like if you could write a prescription for that, I have my own ideas, but I want to hear yours. How could we redirect that energy so that instead of it becoming a source of shame plus entertainment? Yeah. If you were in charge and you said, hey, listen, here's something out of the Luke Reynolds playbook, what would it look like? That's honestly a battle. I feel like I took personally into heart every day as a middle school teacher, because there is that shame creates an amazing audience. Somebody experiencing shame, there's a tendency among adolescents and adults, I think, to gather around and say, hey, look at this. Let's watch this shame in action. This is awesome. And to celebrate that in a horrific, you know, degrading way. Totally dehumanizing. Dehuman, yeah, just destructive, all of that. And I think, like you said, the opposite, if we could touch into that sense of this isn't shame, this is courage. And we look at someone, and I think, I'm going to forget the name of the film, is that beautiful film, Cool Hand Luke. And he's, I forget the scene, he's fighting this guy. And obviously, I don't like the machismo of the film, but I love this, this particular scene. He's fighting this guy, and he over and over again gets knocked down. And they're laughing at him. And it's as, as an audience member watching it, you're like, this guy, there's no, there's nothing here. And it's just in the act of standing back up every time. Totally. Slowly respect starts to form. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a fan of violence in any way, but that profound idea of getting back up again. Getting knocked down and getting back up. Slowly transforms to, to courage. And I think it's for middle school students, they need someone to model that. And I think far too often as adults, we live in a culture of shame as well. So we are often very busy watching other people fail and shaming them, even in passive ways. I think we do it as adults, we do it quite passively when we we pride ourselves on, well, I didn't fail like that person. And, you know, instead of using it as a source for connection. So I think modeling it as adults, being able to talk about our own failures, So as a teacher, I would often talk to students about when I was in seventh grade, when I was your age, I was stealing stuff from stores. I was literally shoplifting like a lot of stuff, not just small stuff, but (laughs) big stuff. They're like, Mr. Reynolds, how could you ever do that? You seem so nice. And I was like, not in, in middle school. I was doing some pretty bad stuff. And what if I had continued on that path? What if I had not had the help of an older brother who was deaf, who took me under his wing and taught me some things? And But when I talk about my failure, not in a way to say... I don't want them to say, whoa, Mr. Reynolds was a thief. But it's more of like that, wow, you really messed up. You really did something bad. And with a sense of respecting the mistake. And Totally. I, not glorifying you as an OG, but I rather really, saying, wow, this is a guy who turned it around and yeah. had the courage to do so. Back to the Cool Hand Luke piece. Yeah. I got to tell you, the hardest I've ever cried in a movie 
was mm. watching Rocky as an adult. I'd watched it as a kid mm. and I kind of got it. It's like, oh, he lost. That kind of sucks in Rocky 1. Yeah. In Rocky yeah. 2, yeah, he wins. But yeah. uh, sorry for those of you who haven't seen Rocky 1 and Rocky 2, but if you <laughs> haven't, come on, get, get yeah. on it. But in, in, in Rocky 1, I, I watched it again as a mm. grown up, as somebody who'd you know, been pummeled in life a few times. Mm. And I watched the director's cut, which is like the extended edition, where you really watch this guy get pummeled. And he just keeps getting back up and he's like, Adrian, I just want to get up. I just want to make it through the 12 rounds or however many rounds it is. And first of all, that, that blew me away. But then when you actually watch this guy getting up, just pummeled by Apollo and just getting back up and just yeah. getting back up and there's, he had no business getting back up. That is such a great movie for, in terms of that type of failure for yeah, us to see yeah. the embodiment of somebody who's just willing to just, yeah. Get back up and yeah. have that moral victory at the end, even if he lost the fight. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well said. And I think you're right. It's in that kind of decision just to keep getting back up, it generates immense dignity. And I think when they carry, I love love that they carried that storyline into Creed with Dude, totally. Jordan. <laughs> and then it becomes like you said, the getting back up, that physical manifestation. But then also that internal, like, here's this kid who's had it family trauma and he's lived in jail in the orphan system and, and he is getting back up and it's like that passing on this torch and it's uh -huh. beautiful to see that attribute that get back up no matter what and it doesn't matter it sounds trite but that true you, you earn dignity and respect and a sense of identity not by winning but by getting back up then you like that's it the match is over you've won as soon as you got back up Totally. And the great Ryan Coogler, the director of Creed, is actually mentioned in your book as one of the case studies, if I'm not mistaken. So, dude, I mean, just congratulations to you on this book. I think that even though it's ostensibly written for children, I think adults can glean so much reading it on their own and could read it to their children just like a chapter a night to be shared. I think that it would be a great way to cultivate family values and around recognizing failure as just, it's just the fee to get to where you want to get. I want to ask you one final question. It's a bit of a magical, fantastical question. If you had <laughs> the powers to confer upon all humanity, one insight or one skill as it related to failure, what would it be? And what effect do you imagine it would have on the individual as well as society at large? I think to almost piggyback on what we, our, our last interchange, I would say it would be a skill, the ability to celebrate failure in others, to celebrate slash encourage. So we're thinking about the middle school students, someone fails, they go up for a dunk and they get, you know, rejected and they fall flat on their face instead of a crowd saying, oh, it would be the crowd, the response and the encouragement, like, nice try, way to go, man, you got this. Oh next my time. God, you know, like what that a great idea. Of, that, that we would just be conditioned to, you see failure and the immediate response is like, you got it next time. Like you, you got this. And I imagine the effect it would have on us is we, not that failure would be gone. We'd all fail. I think it would increase failure, but we'd be, we, we would be so much happier as people. I think we would know, yeah, this, this is okay. I'm, I'm going to keep trying then. It would remove the stigma and the shame from the failure, not the failure itself. Dude, I love that idea so much. I can't even stand it. In Japan, when you show effort, the guy who dives valiantly for the ball and misses it, but dives and you can see his musculature. This guy is going for the ball with all of his heart and all his might. That is celebrated. Doryoku is the word for effort in Japan. And that's like a really, that's like a key term in Japanese culture. And I love that idea. And if we were able to just kind of pipe that over here, 
and make that more of like the thing that we celebrate. Wow. Wouldn't that be brilliant? If I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it's apocryphal or if it actually happened this way, but I believe it was Pepsi-Cola back in the 90s, 80s, for all I know, who said of its marketing department that you must come to the meeting with failures because if we, you ain't failing, you ain't trying. I love that idea. May that come about, Luke. (laughs) I love that idea, man. Dude, I mean, I just knew when I saw your book in the bookstore that I had to interview you. This was clearly not a fail. (laughs) <laughs> not a face plant. Not that should take anything away from this experience because it sounds like this one was a success. But do, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom. And just I can't wait to see what you do, who you become. I hope that have you back on it someday where you can share some of your failures and successes along the way. And it's so nice to hang with you. Adam, totally mutual. This has been amazing. Thank you. And I've learned a ton from I love the, the references you shared and the stories and just who you are, the energy and everything. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Right on, bro. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 